To eat is to be human. Nothing is more pleasurable than a brightly sized plate of nourishing, tasty, beautiful food artfully and lovingly prepared in a way that honors the world from which it came. Anything less is unhealthy and a desecration. There is no conflict between a good meal and a better world. An adaptation from Wendell Berry and Michael Pollan. Hi. Thank you for listening to the Becoming Human podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Kleberger. What is this? What are we doing here? Well, this show is about exploring what it means to be alive. So what are we doing here? And the last several episodes have gone real meta into that. Ecology and the earth and the existence of humans within the context of everything. It's been a lot. So we're going to wrap this ecological exploration up today, at, at least with big explorations. And we are going to do so with one of the most practical dimensions of this whole conversation. Food. We all eat. There is no going, you know post-eating in society. And I think this is the most tactile component of ecological ethics. So enough of this, let's get into it. Let's talk about food. And I'll end with trying to bring this whole conversation together in a final episode next time with some practical suggestions for everything, or at least practical questions to ask. So let's talk about food. Let's just jump straight to it. Here's my basic point. How we eat reveals our fundamental attitude toward the world. Now, this is partly because eating is the fullest connection between humans and the earth. Everything, literally, comes together at the table. It enacts our life with ourselves, with others, and with the natural world of which we are a part. So, I think we should be quite concerned about food because we eat. And as I said in the opening episode on ecology, there's the possibility that we will eat in a way that guarantees that we one day won't. In all of this eating talk, I I hope it makes the point that, that our lives are literally embedded in the land. Like think of eating this way. Eating is what happens when you ingest the gifts of the earth. And I know that seems trite, but I think we forget that sometimes. Food and land are such an assumption. We drive by it, we go to a store, we get it in a package, and we aren't hungry anymore because we pop something in our mouth. But food is the embodiment of ecological entanglement. This this also means, by the way, that we should be concerned about food production. Food isn't just the most practical dimension of ecological ethics. It's kind of the bedrock that leads to a, a better version of other things, too. Eating well ought to lead to healthier landscapes, if it actually embodies the principles we've talked about. Eating, as Wendell Berry is famous for saying, is an agricultural act. To be interested in food but not how food is produced is a bit ironic. This also means, though, that eating is not a morally neutral act, because eating determines how you are using the world whether or not you are enacting responsible or irresponsible dependence. But you can't tell in our culture, can you? At, at least with the majority of humans today, if, if you think about food, 
it's a product to sell. It's a means to consumption. It's an article of international trade. And that's about it. When we talk about food, we talk more about entertainment or profit margin, uh, you know, or something to pop in the microwave before your next meeting than anything else. In the modern world, it seems like we've kind of made a deal when it comes to food. We chose convenience and comfort with a bountiful supply of products, most of which are self-stable. And we chose this deal because it feeds the world and it feeds the world cheaply. But has it been good? That's a determination that needs discussed. And I often wonder what, you know, some 9th century peasant or tribal farmer would think if they walked down the aisle of a modern supermarket. For most of history, food was not nearly as tasty or chemically catalyzing in the brain, but it was easier. I mean, harder in terms of survival and work. It was simpler. It's what Michael Pollan pointed out in saying that food has changed more in the last 75 years than the previous 10,000. And now, you know, we have more of it than we need. We eat more of it than we should. And we've allowed it to cause more problems than is probably necessary. But that, too, was part of the deal. And this is the food culture that we kind of find ourselves in now. You know, you can get on Instagram and it's a form of entertainment. You see, you see people, you know, creating these amazingly artistic meals where it's almost glamorized. But then at the end of the day, like when you talk about restaurants, whether they're Michelin star restaurants or the diner down the road, the food comes down to profit. And the way that we supply food has, the conversation is literally more about what's the margin on this than what's a good thing. Um, or, or if we just look at like how food is produced. I mean, I know lots and lots of farmers who will say the way that we're producing this food, is it the best? Absolutely not. But this is the necessary way to do it in the world that we live in. And and when we think about like the amount of supply, like sometimes showing up to a grocery store in that big box exists an unbelievable amount of product that you can buy to eat. That's absolutely unprecedented in world history. And, and yet the whole way that the system works is that you need to continue to produce more and more and more so that you can control what's going on financially. And, and we've almost overproduced food at this point. That's all just part of the, the situation that we have. So where did we go wrong with food? And did we go wrong with food? And, and one pitfall of this idea, you know, I talk about how, how eating is the most full connection between yourself, between others, and between uh, the, the world around us, well, when you eat, that's affecting you. Like from physical health effects to the effects of farming, we're talking about stuff that has immediate consequences for your life, for your life with others. And, you know, that's especially talking about how you consume the food. Is it in the presence of others? Does it share interdependence with others? But even uh, just societally and, and, and ecologically, you could make a case that our convenience and our ease and, and the whole conversation on profit is literally killing us. So where did we go wrong with food? And I want to be clear. I kind of know the answer. At least from my anecdotal perspective. I also benefit greatly from food as it is today. So this question is less about, you know, a general inquiry. 
And it's more about considering if the way things are is actually what we want. And we can't avoid eating. And our eating is going to have the biggest effect on anything ecologically. And I'm not just talking about the nutrient level of food. You know, what about the economic processes? What about the relational value that has so much been ingrained within food and eating throughout history? What about production practices? Are these good? Are these good for everyone? Are these good for how things might continue to sustain? So eating how we do, it might be good for you and you might enjoy it, but uh, the positive value of, of happiness or comfort does not make it a good moral or ethical choice. And again, if there is but one detriment involved, it will eventually trace its way back to you. If we are dishonoring the food process, we do so at our own demise. And in short-term gains, that short-term satisfaction, I get it. And I take full advantage of that short-term satisfaction all the time. But even if we just acknowledge the fragility of what is called a linear food system, like a burger at a restaurant required an unbelievable amount of logistical sophistication just to get to your mouth. And you might enjoy it and it might bring you pleasure. It might even be healthy for your body physically. But what happens if a linear food system gets disrupted? When you have necessary products traveling thousands of miles, it going wrong can be devastating. For most of history, you ate stuff that you looked at all the time. And it was paltry. And it was sometimes scarce. But in negating those problems, have we created more? I mean, 2022 is seeing the exponential increase in food prices which is exactly what our world is built for. Your fruit coming from Central America was cheap, where the system ran smoothly. You know, the well-packaged meat in perfect shapes was fine with no disruptions, but it was fragile. And that's just, that's just the economic component. What about physical health? You know, does our relationship to food have mental effects? What about the relational value? What about the economics? What, what about all of it? I love this quote by William Grant. He, he paints a great picture of, you know, the nutrient and economic side of this qua uh, equation, uh, but also starts poking at some of the issues, not just with a linear food system or with modern farming practices or with the amount of supply and product accessibility we have. He, he's kind of exposing this general question of where did we go wrong? So here's kind of what he says. Processed food is a composition of products to resemble something edible, usually with inorganic, meaning not naturally occurring, ingredients. Consider, for example, the ingredients in a popular variety of frozen dairy dessert, the description that has replaced ice cream now that no cream is actually used in the product. The ice cream ingredient list is actually modest by comparison to most processed foods. A popular brand of snack cookie, for example, has 45 ingredients including corn syrup, folic acid, cottonseed oil, soybean oil, thiamine mononitrate, ammonium bicarbonate, dextrose, polysorbate 60, sorbitin monosteriate, soy lecithin, mono and diglycerides, cornstarch, caramel color, carrageenan, red dye 40, sorbic acid, and yellow dye 5. Here's another example. 
A steer from a farm in Virginia might be sold at a livestock auction, then transported to a feedlot in Kansas where it will be fattened on corn grown in Iowa before being trucked to a slaughterhouse in Texas. There its meat will be ground and aggregated with that of thousands of other steers from all over the country, then shipped to a facility in California where it will be processed into frozen patties and then trucked across the country to be sold at fast food restaurants. A cheeseburger sold at a McDonald's in Kentucky then might contain a bit of the Virginia steer on a bun made in part from wheat grown in Minnesota along the lettuce from California, tomatoes from Mexico, cheese from cows milked in Wisconsin, pickles from cucumbers grown in Florida, flavorings manufactured in New Jersey, and spices and additives from literally all over the world. The 73 ingredients in a McDonald's Big Mac, for example, include chemical additives such as ammonium chloride, sodium stereolactylate, sodium phosphate, polysorbate 80, and azodicarbamide that did not originate on any farm. In fact, the vast majority of the food additives and vitamin fortifications found in food these days are produced synthetically in China. A strawberry milkshake from a popular fast food chain has 59 ingredients, most of which are chemical additives and none of which are strawberries. Consider, by comparison, the ingredient list for an organic tomato purchased at a farmer's market. Tomato. It's like, if you explain this to a 9th century peasant, they might not know that you are talking about food. I mean, I barely could pronunciate half of the things listed there. And listen, let's just acknowledge like the magnific magnificence of that process. Ammonium bicarbonate. I don't even know what that is. Somebody used the brilliance of human potential and created something that has helped feed human beings. I imagine there are people in history that would look at our food system with amazement and think, look how much easier that is. So on one hand, we should be grateful. We should be impressed even. One burger can represent a vast array of the global landscape. That could be cool, I guess. But the point I'm trying to emphasize is, do we have a package deal where you have to choose which good or cool thing you want? Can you have this ease and, and, and innovation and comfort and pleasure and health at the same time. And I like this contrast of the short game versus the long game. Satisfaction and comfort versus the process, you know, which is rife with difficulty and intentionality and discipline. Like weight loss and diet culture are huge with this. We looked at a world bulging with health concerns and said, you know, let's make more products, mostly synthetic, of course, but... Can you have a fast, easy, convenient, you know, well-packaged solution to your health? It, it will give you all the things you want without any of the difficulty you don't want. Perfect. And there are so many startups and MLMs and multinational corporation products that are solving one problem and maybe, just maybe, creating more. Because it's got to be a long game when we're talking about these things. So is it a package deal? Do you have to choose? Do we actually have limitations as human beings where you don't have every option, where you have to pick a standard and accept its ramifications? You know, if I want to be married to the same person for decades and reap the benefits of consistent in intimacy over time, it makes certain things impossible. There's no drink or potion or magic fix to obtain that healthy long-term relationship, especially if I'm just after short-term satisfaction. 
There's no fast track to achieve that standard all at once. And if I want that kind of relationship while also wanting one night stands every night, well, they might be mutually exclusive to each other. If for no other reason, then I have limited time. But the value and the relational component might be mutually exclusive too. But back to food. One key difference we might notice between these relationships to food and eating is that food went from something central to your existence and survival to a commodity. And I also wonder if that has any negative implications for us too. Now, all of that just raises questions and and examines potential problems. doesn't offer anything. So I want to share some of the food guidelines I've tried to use where I've tried to take ecological entanglement and place economy and and put this into a practical and and important dimension of food. Uh, And try there is a key word, try. And I'm not going to tell you what to eat. Uh, I don't think that works. And I know there are lots of diets and documentaries that do. Most of them are bogus. Most of them are also just trying to sell something. Uh, Most have an agenda. But back at the beginning of the year, we had an episode with a health and wellness coach who also happens to be my spouse, and she talked about intuitive eating, which is gaining steam right now uh, socially because it's a direct reaction to like the fad diet and pseudoscience food culture we're seeing. And listen, I'm not a nutritionist, so I'm not going to pretend to be one. I'm not giving dietary or nutrition advice here, but from a philosophical perspective, I have three guidelines that I found helpful for me and not just in a physical health orientation, but in this larger scope of ecological health, which also happens to include my own health and not just my physical health, but my larger identity within the world as it is. So here are three guidelines, all of which can be articulated in a variety of ways. First, what I'm eating shouldn't be violent. And I'm not violent as in like food being violent. Uh, It's not like Sausage Party, that animated movie where food is going to declare war. Uh, I'm also not trying to align myself with those who stand outside of places with signs about animal cruelty. Animal cruelty is dumb. Don't do it. But that's not exactly what I mean here. Violence is anything that is destructive. Violence would maybe be the opposite of the health idea, universal flourishing that we've been talking about the last few episodes. Eating should reflect flourishing. And food can go against that ecological entanglement in a lot of ways. The way food gets to you can be violent or destructive to workers. It can be violent or destructive to animals uh, or to the landscape. It can also be violent or destructive to your own demise. And based on what we've said about interdependence, if it's destructive or harmful in any one of those categories, it will eventually trace its way back to you, right? And and yes, some answers could be vegetarianism or veganism. Uh, But if you've ever worked in a, a field that produces fruits and vegetables, animals die violently all the time in that process too. But all of these are ways in which food can cause harm. 
and not, and not suffering. I don't mean suffering here. Suffering is going to happen. That's a existential reality. That's a separate conversation. Harm that transcends a moment is another thing. And that kind of unhealth will find its way back to all of us. Um, now, full disclosure, some of this actually comes from the dietary laws in the book of Leviticus within the Torah of Judaism. I know, going way old school, right? But uh, seriously, a lot of the dietary laws there are restrictions on food to curb excessive violence and control consumption for the good of everyone and everything. You need to read Leviticus really patiently to get that, but it's actually there. Um, and I raise animals for meat. I eat them. I eat the meat of animals butchered by people I know. And I try to handle that as respectfully as I can. So I'm not saying don't eat meat or, you know, don't kill animals for food. The death and suffering is going to happen anyway. And while it's an interesting philosophical question, I think the practical component is simply paying attention to quantity and paying attention to source and paying attention to process. And how can we make that uh, as, as the least destructive version as possible? You know, I, I love the idea of saying, you can eat anything you want, you just have to make it or raise it yourself. Like if you could only eat meat that you raised, would your diet change at all? Or, or kind of to go with this theme, there's a quote from Wendell Berry, of course, where he says, Though I am by no means a vegetarian, I dislike the thought that some animal has been made miserable in order to feed me. If I am going to eat meat, I want it to be from an animal that has lived a pleasant, uncrowded life outdoors on bountiful pasture with good water nearby and trees for shade. And so this idea of, is this violent? It's, it's maybe a better way would be to say, is this harmful to the standard of health? Health to me, health to uh, that which I'm consuming, health to my neighbors, to the people around me, to those I have relationships with, health to uh, the, the larger system that's creating this, health of the landscape, health of the totality of the, the ecosystem. Uh, again, that's a super ideal value to use, but it's a good guideline, right? It's a good way to ask the questions to, to help us pay attention to how we're consuming food. So that's the first one. Uh, and that starts getting to the second guideline, which is eating should be healthy. So eating should not cause harm. Uh, and I can't find a better word there to uh, emphasize the, the larger idea. It's not violence or harm or destruction as in like that momentary something died. Is this harmful to the ideal? At the same time, the opposite of that is, is this bringing about the ideal? So it's you start with, am I avoiding that, that destructive process? And am I promoting a healthy one? Am I promoting the standard of ecological entanglement? And this brings up conversations like obesity and overconsumption and disease. You know, basically, don't eat anything that your body can't process and don't eat more than your body is meant to process, you know? Take no more food than nature requires, which is easier said than done. Uh, 
but we often fill our plates with more than we need. We eat more than our bodies can handle. And then we throw the rest away. And side note, the waste of food is almost as much of a problem as the food system itself. And that goes back to our overproduction of food. But the health impact is similar to the violence perspective. So it shouldn't only not do harm to yourself, to others, or the larger ecosystem. It should also be beneficial. Does your eating happen at someone else's expense? Does it happen at your own expense? How can you eat in a way that actually imbues a better version of reality as a result of what you bought, what you made, what you raised, what you ate? That should be a, a, a prompting question for us too. So food eating and food systems or, or food economics even shouldn't do harm. They should also lead to good. You're good. Your neighbor's good. The land's good. The ecological good. The economic good. All of it. But finally, <clears throat> and this is a less obvious one. And those first two, you could probably guess there's nothing groundbreaking there. I get it. It's the description that has the nuance. And I think that is necessary for us to remember. Maybe those first two we just need to remind it of. This one, though, is particular to our day and age. Eating should be countercultural. And this is very directly aimed toward the modern food system, but also toward the assumed processes involved that we all just kind of inherited. If we had a world where we were already doing guideline one and guideline two, you don't need the third. So I am kind of assuming that our current way of doing things uh, isn't all that great. And this can include, you know, the rare, rarity of shared meals. 60% of families say they rarely eat together. 10% say they almost never do. Can our way of eating be countercultural to that? Or we could talk about the habits of overconsumption or, uh, the access and the speed at which we eat. Those can be countercultural as well. Um, like I said, you know, food may be just a commodity to pop in the microwave before your next meeting. We have this speed at which we eat, which means that this is just a means to an end. We just don't want to be hungry anymore, so we eat. And we're not actually engaging with the, the, the things we're eating in a way that can really garner our respect. And there's all sorts of things that have come out, you know, from, from religious worldviews like Tibetan Buddhism, even, of the benefits of eating slowly. So countercultural in that way. We also have this whole industry based on speed and convenience. You know, the average meal travels 1,500 miles. So we eat really fast. We also have this, this absolute long and, as I've said, fragile process to getting the food. Um, there's also the desire for food being cheap. Um, how can this be called countercultural? Because what our, our, our emphasis on food being the monetary value, you know, like the restaurants going like, well, what's going to be the bottom line here? We tend to not concern ourselves with other costs for the sake of saving money. So we're very fixated on the monetary price of something, but does our process of food have any other costs to them? And I see them sometimes when people are considering, you know, buying from a farmer or, you know, a local small scale kitchen. Um, and they'll say, yeah, but it's way cheaper at the supermarket or uh, the fast food chain. 
yeah. But does it taste as good? Does it financially contribute as much to a diversity of people? Does that process that makes that food so much cheaper cause harm or goodness? <clears throat> there are a lot of cheaper options that are also way more expensive when you consider all of the other costs that are going into that thing. And I just don't think we think about these costs much at all. And you've kind of seen like movies point this out. If, if the only component to consider with food is cost, uh, like monetary cost, then we should literally just have like these conglomerated congealed pieces of edible stuff that provide you the basic nutrients you eat that you just get like injected into your body. If that's the only thing we care about, then just do that. But if there are other costs and other potential good things that can come from eating, we need to consider that as well. You know, I could go to a fast food place and spend 10 bucks and uh, eat a good bit of food. I could also go to a, a smaller place which is going to put the money in that person's pocket who might happen to be from my community, so the money stays there economically, who's also getting that food without that linear food system and spend 10 bucks and not get as much food. I also assume it'll probably taste better, but what about all those other costs, right? So I think that's a way to consider the countercultural perspective. But in, in terms of counterculture, you also have fad diets. You have the glorification and glamorization of food. Uh, you have the commodi commoditization of food. And I'm not going to come out and just say all this stuff is bad. I'm not saying that. It should be questioned, though. The whole premise here is that what is normal in our culture might actually be insane. And if we can just stop to think about those things, we, we might start moving in a better direction at least. Even if all we do is engage with food in a way where it isn't just a product, but it's part of this shared world that contains our life, that shift in attention can be powerful. And that's counter to our current cultural norms. Another quote, you know, why not? The surest way to escape the Western diet and food industry is simply to depart from the realms it rules, the supermarket, the convenience store, and the fast food outlet. Hmm. In a world where, where food is an international item of trade or a potential line item of profit, I think there are just a lot of ways where food is so assumed or has our general apathy that we just stop and think, is there a better way to do this? Like, why don't we raise a lot of our own food or, or, or go to people who are raising food and try to find ways to support them why don't we eat more slowly? Why don't we eat more with other people? And I think it's because we've chosen luxury, comfort, and convenience as our standard. And I do this all the time. I'm not trying to sit here pretentiously and say, you should be more like me. No, I, I get it. But maybe we should question those norms. Maybe we should question those standards. Maybe we should question that package deal and think about this differently. And here's the thing, the most important component of this is starting somewhere. Like use the principles and the frameworks and the guidelines, however you want, just start somewhere and see how it goes. I started taking this conversation seriously about 12 years ago. 
And even today, I eat vastly different than I did back when I started. And I need to continue to move and evolve. But simply by considering these questions, it forced me to start thinking more deeply about how I consume food. And even today, I will eat at a fast food place with terrible ingredients and terrible food and all of that. Uh, And I at least acknowledge that, hey, I think this is a compromise. And I try to do better. And, And sometimes just that can start making a difference. Because the other option here is to not care. Apathy. And we just keep on doing things the same way. And I just wonder if those costs and that effect on health will eventually catch up with us. But the biggest things I would suggest then when it comes to food, that the biggest things that impacted me were to, one, participate in food production, and two, to cook. Cooking especially. Uh, There's an art to it and a patience. It also requires a lot of your mind and a lot of your intention. You have to make decisions of not only what you will cook, but where you will get that stuff from. And the practical dimension of food, when cooking the food, it becomes even more practical and necessary. But as you begin to see yourself, you know, kind of bringing forth a gift and interacting with a gift, it changes you. And listen, no other species cooks. So in a way, to learn to cook is to learn to be human. And it carries this respect and awareness and pleasure uh, that's becoming more and more rare. So every day you're going to eat. And can you use this opportunity, this invitation of actually making food to kind of compel you into a better way of interacting with ecological ethics? I think that's the, the best entry point. The other one, though, is uh, to participate in food production. And, and for some people, this is like, yeah, have a garden um, or, or raise some kind of food product. Uh, the, the tricky thing with this is that not everybody has the land to do food production, especially in urban environments. And um, I also kind of see some people interacting with this in a way where it's like, yeah, you, you grew a tomato plant. And, you know, that's not going to uh, solve the larger global issues that we're talking about. At the same time, like, that's a step. That's a good thing. That's a good interaction. I also don't think we should celebrate that as the end-all, be-all solution to all of this. But uh, especially for urban folks, the thing that I'll recommend is you're surrounded by countryside that has land, that has people that have been doing this, and I know the grocery store is closer. I know it's more convenient. I know it's often cheaper, but what are the other costs? And can you find ways to support people who are doing food production? And if so, that's part of it. But it's really just this process of asking more questions. And if you're already committed to uh, cooking yourself, um, it, these questions are necessary to ask anyway. You know, you need to know where your food comes from. You should know what it is, like all of it. And, and uh, not in like a Portlandia kind of way. I don't know if anybody's ever watched that. Uh, but but have some proxy with with your food consumption, your food production, and and how that's getting to you. And ask like, how did this get to you? Is it good for you? Is it good for the place? 
what's the history of this style of food? There's a way that when you're cooking and when you're getting products that you're connecting with generations that have preceded you that makes your current way of eating possible. Like that's a cool thing to consider. Ask how have people cooked with these ingredients in the past? What does this configuration of food cooked in this way do to your body? What ecological effects come from how the food was harvested and when it was harvested? I mean, there's just how you eat has all of these questions to it. And you're never going to accomplish all of these at once. Nobody's going to obtain sort of this ideal way of, of interacting with food, especially in the reality of our world as it is today. But if we can just start somewhere, I think that's helpful. And I think the biggest thing it does is it starts changing the way you consider what you're doing. And if we can make that happen, there's a lot more potential. And then you have questions about, you know, how you eat and its speed and who is it with or, or who it's not with. These are all appropriate questions too. But every time you eat, it's a moral decision. It's also an opportunity for connection. And that's ecological entanglement. I'm just saying we should take that more seriously. We, we, should, we should work to make sure that our food is creating as little harm as possible that it's promoting a good version of reality and that it's considering that maybe our current way of doing things isn't that great because there is no conflict in my opinion between a good meal and a better world a good world may just begin with how we eat <laughs>